Well, last week, my wife and I celebrated our 32nd wedding anniversary, which is pretty fantastic. You can go nuts if you want to, but um, that's a long time, 32 years and then, uh, of marriage. And, uh, you know, when I met her, uh, she was a, a sweetie, little sweet school teacher, Baptist girl, never did anything wrong in her whole life. She was the sweetest little thing. And I was a broker. I was working at Duncan Williams for, I was at Duncan Williams for four years, and I went to Morgan Keegan for less than a year. I failed miserably and left that, and uh, then the ministry awaited. But, um, uh, you know, for a while there, before we even knew each other, she was working at Summer and Graham at a little school on the corner of Summer and Graham. I was living in the French Village apartments at Summer and Graham. And so there was a time where we were driving past one another, didn't even know that there was going to be a day when we would come together. And, uh, you know, so we meet and we date and, and we get married and, and uh, we're going down the aisle and it's dan, 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 time to throw the rice, you know. And uh, before I know it, there's a naked girl walking around my apartment. It was my wife, by the way. Uh, and I'm like, this is a pretty good deal. And, uh, and it was amazing because it like happened instantly. Uh, and it, was, it wasn't because the, the preacher signed a piece of paper, you know, signs his name, you may now walk around the apartment with your top off, or you may now hand him a towel when he forgets to put it on the hook. It was this instant thing that happened, and it was more than just a physical uh, situation. Uh, it was something that Jesus would call a one flesh union, to become one flesh. That has more to do than physicality, a one flesh union. Well, um, I typically teach through books of the Bible uh, expositionally. I start in chapter 1, verse 1, and I work my way through, and that's kind of how I do it. I'm an expositional teacher, and there's, you know, there's challenges and comforts in that. The comfort in that uh, is that you know what your passage is going to be next week. And the challenge is you know what your passage is going to be next week because whatever is coming your way is coming your way, and you better, you better gird up your loins and learn how to handle it. So um, all that to say... I'm doing something, if you've ever heard me before, I'm not, I'm not going to be teaching expositionally tonight. I'm going to be uh, preaching expositionally. I'm going to be teaching. I'm in a, kind of in a teaching mode. I don't have sermon points. Uh, I'm in a uh, teaching mode. And so um, that's where I'm going to camp out uh, here right now uh, on a topic. And uh, so I'm thinking, okay, I've got three weeks allotted to me. Uh, you got to come up with something kind of zingy or something that at least has some uh, cohesion. Uh, like Kyle had a series on uh, grace as a, uh, no, discipline as a grace. And uh, Chris Luce got something coming up, you know, justification, sanctification, glorification. Well, that's a great idea for a three-part series. Fantastic. And I'm like, what should I do? Well, I'm doing the very first thing the Lord laid on my heart. The very first thing I thought of, uh, I tried to think of other things, but the very first thing I thought of was Christ and his bride. And I've entitled the whole thing, The Exquisite Beauty of Christ and his bride. Now, if that were your topic, the exquisite beauty of Christ and his bride, I wonder where you would start. Um, I bet some of you would go, oh, easy, Song of Solomon. And I can tell you that that's the last place that I would start. Uh, because, uh, and I don't want to get too bogged down in this, but uh, you know, a lot of people, perhaps you've only heard this your whole life, that the Song of Solomon is a wonderful picture of Christ and, the, and his bride. Um, I don't think that's what the Song of Solomon is at all. In fact, I got eight commentaries on the Song of Solomon that all believe what I, and you can get as many books as you want, but I do not think that the Song of Solomon is an allegory of Christ and his bride. 
Let me give you an example. One, this is the last thing I'm going to say about my wife's body. <laughs> she has a much older sister and who's married to a pastor at Bellevue. Much older sister. And her much older sister used to teach my, te tease my wife as a child with this verse from Song of Solomon, chapter 8. We have a little sister. She has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day for when she is spoken? Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you can turn that into a wonderful picture of Christ and his bride, well, then you are a cowboy. Uh, <laughs> how about this? How beautiful are your feet oh, uh, in sandals, O oh, noble daughter? Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is like a rounded bowl. Your belly is a heap of wheat. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. How beautiful. Um, your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. What a wonderful picture of Christ and his bride. Now, I'm, I don't mean to make light of a person's interpretation of that book, but my point is, that ain't where I'm starting. You know where else you could start? Pentecost. That'd be a great place to start, because Pentecost, uh, you're talking about the early church, and the Holy Spirit has come upon the new uh, group of believers and, and all that. And believe me, we will be talking about Pentecost and the New Testament a lot next week. Um, but that's not where I would start. Uh, it would be a very healthy place to start, but that's not where I would start. Um, perhaps we should take a lesson from the Lord Jesus. Here's what Jesus says. I'm not going to have you turn uh, to here yet uh, in, a, in a second, but he says this in, in Mark 10. He says, from the beginning of creation, God made them. Okay, the question was put to Jesus. Hey, what about divorce, Jesus? And God, Jesus answers, hey, from the beginning of creation, God made them, the humans, you know, the ones that are going to come into a relationship with each other. He made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, two, but one flesh. Well, that's where that term comes from, doesn't it? Jesus quoting the Bible. Here's Matthew's account of it. Matthew, the same question, it's just a different scene. The, the Pharisees are asking Jesus about divorce, and he answers, with, he answers sharply, uh, not to the flock, but to the religious, you know, the clergy, the staff. He says, uh, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, Jesus is quoting Genesis. Please turn to Genesis. Let's go to the very, very easy to find, Genesis 1.1. I want to take you on a journey. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created. Now that adds a lot of clarity to a lot of things, doesn't it? Just look around your life, look around the world, how things should, how should things be, how should things operate. Well, in the beginning, God created. Well, from there goes on a, an, a creation account. In fact, there's a couple creation accounts. There's a creation account that's kind of highly stylized, and then there's another creation account that is more deliberately focused on human beings. So if you look at chapter 2, verse 8 of Genesis, it says, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant and so on. But God makes mankind. 
And there's another reference to that in, chap in, in chapter 5. Uh, male and female, he created them, he blessed them, and, 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 and so on. Um, but God intends to populate that garden is the point. Um, God puts a man and woman in there. Um, and uh, check this in verse uh, um, uh, 15. Look at verse 15 of Genesis 2. The Lord took the man, he puts him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of uh, every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So very specific uh, parameters there. Verse 18. Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, that, that's, that's pretty profound, isn't it? Uh, we'll, 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 let, let me ask you a question. When God says... Um, it is not good that the man should be alone. Here's my question. Was God surprised? Was God surprised by that? I mean, here he makes this world, and it's good, and everything's good, and this is good, and this is good, and this is good, but this one thing's not good, that man's alone, and so he remedies that situation by creating man. Did God make this wonderful thing and then go, oh, you know what? You know what would make it even better? Didn't think of it before. But I'm thinking of it now, and I'm going to make this woman. Do you really think that that's the God of the Bible? That he didn't make it as good as perfect. And so he had to kind of sharpen the pencil and make it a little bit more perfect. Uh, that's called a rhetorical question. Uh, um, he, he, he built something into creation, ladies and gentlemen, so that we would see it. He could have made everything just like that. He didn't need days. He could have just spoken. Everything could have been men, woman, everybody, kids all grown up. Everything could happen. All, he could have done anything he wanted, but instead he chose to put that situation in there so that we could see in a series of time that woman is created for a specific purpose. Now, and you can see, I mean, the, the Bible is only one page old. One page. And it's already talking about human beings and how they're supposed to come together uh, in matrimony, how they're supposed to come together as a family. That's not old information. That's brand new, right, built into creation, right here. Now, one can easily understand the bond between a mother and a child. One can easily understand the bond between a father and a child, or a grandparent and a grandchild, or an aunt and a niece or a nephew, and an uncle and niece or nephew, or cousins or brothers and sisters, and all that kind of stuff. Anybody see the most recent Downton Abbey movie? Anybody see the Downton Abbey movie? Okay. Well, uh, Sibby gets the villa. Okay, that's in the movie. So you got Granny. You, she's the mom of Lord Grantham and Lady Grantham. They're rich. They live in a castle kind of thing, Downton Abbey. So you got Granny, Lord Grantham, Lady Grantham. They have some kids. One of those kids, uh, Princess, Lord, you know, what, Lady somebody, she ends up falling in love with the Irish car mechanic in the first season. So that, they're not happy about that, and, and then all of a sudden she dies, and, uh, but not before they've had a kid. Well, here comes the movie in the theater now, and uh, Granny has inherited a villa in the south of France, and she's getting pretty old, and so she wills it to Sibby. Why didn't she will it to the mechanic, the husband? Well, obviously because he ain't blood. She's willing at the Sibby, who's in the family bloodline. We all understand the connection that comes from a family bloodline. Family's family, right? Well, what a mystery then. That a man shall leave his father and mother, the bloodline, 
and hold fast to his wife, not in the bloodline. And those two shall become one flesh. It's amazing. Other translations of this, uh, of this hold fast to his wife, other translations say will, uh, will be united to his wife or shall cleave to his wife or um, be joined to his wife. And the idea there is not an amalgamation, like a husband and wife kind of mixed together and, and uh, they lose their identities and they're this brand new thing that didn't... No, no, no. It's not an amalgamation. It's not a fusion where two lives come together and they're just kind of stuck together just tolerating one another. I mean, you know, maybe some of you, but... Uh, um, that, that single relationship that, that a husband and wife come together as one flesh uh, is, is unique among all human relationships. And God uses that as a picture for us to understand how we are related to in Jesus Christ. And, you know, he uses other profound um, uh, relationships like this in Hosea 13.8. Um, like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and tear them asunder. Well, hey, you know, a bear's scary, but if two little cubs walk up to you, uh, don't pet them, because uh, mama bears are scary. In fact, uh, uh, mama humans are scary, uh, in a good way. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, like the eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, God spreads wings to catch you and carries you on pinions. Well, what a loving picture of a, a mother caring for a, a, a chick. Um, Deuteronomy 32, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you, B-O-R-E, that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Not God speaking in terms of a mother who having given birth. How about this? Um, As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. So like a mother comforts her child, like only a mother can comfort her child, God comforts. That's a vivid picture. I'll give you one more just It's got a cultural touchstone to it. Isaiah 49, can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? You know, your first take on reading that is, oh, no, of course not. Oh, really? Well, if you kill the child in your womb, I I wouldn't call that compassion. How about this, though? Um, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Now you got this fatherly love picture in the Old Testament. Um, also in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 8.5, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. How about this? Uh, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, uh, the son he delights in, also in Proverbs. So as God, who is immortal and infinite and eternal, he is communicating to beings that he's created who are finite, who are mortal, And for us to understand those kinds of things, he speaks to us in anthropomorphic terms, which is a term you probably have heard, anthropomorphic terms. You know, anthropology, study of man, God speaks to us in anthropomorphic terms so that we humans can understand profound truths. He speaks to us in terms that we can get, you know, father, mother. But one of the ways he describes our coming together with him, um, our coming together with the Lord Jesus, the Savior, is in the most profound relationship that can be had, which is a one flesh union. Now, let me flip real quick to Ephesians. I, I don't turn because I, well, I'm only there for a second, but the Apostle Paul cites this very thing. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul adds, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. <laughs> 
Now, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians, we'll, we'll talk about this more next time, but the Apostle Paul in Ephesians is really talking about real human relationships. He really is talking about a husband and wife, but he is adding that this mystery is profound. It's greater than this idea, father, child, mother, child. We get it, deep relationships, but a one flesh union, completely distinct, and it is to make us think of Christ and the church because nothing surpasses that in intimacy. So, history. God creates a good world. It's got good systems. Um, the earth is to be tended to in a, a certain way. Should we care about the earth? Absolutely, we should care about the earth. We are caretakers of the earth. We should care about the earth. The um, body is to be uh, considered and used a certain way, isn't it? Um, human relationships are to function a certain way. That's built into creation. And most importantly, creatures are to relate to their creator in a very precise way. That's why God gives this stipulation about not, uh, touch, uh, not, uh, not partaking of a certain uh, tree. And so the apex of creation, who are men and women, men and, men and women, the apex of creation are made in the very image of God. They are persons, like God is a person. They have a moral sense, like God does. They are communicative, like God is. Uh, we think about what's happening a week from Thursday at 2.30 in the afternoon. Well, crickets and koalas and bears don't do that. We do. We are the apex of creation created in God's image. Well, we rebelled. We went against God. And we became accursed and separated from Him and uh, dead. Spiritually dead immediately and physically dead eventually. And the result of that, um, we know. Well, look at Genesis 3. Upon the fall, um, everything moves into a different state. It's not a state of blessedness, blessedness anymore. It's a state of accursedness. And God pronounces this curse, Genesis 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent who had deceived Adam and Eve, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. Again, cursed is the opposite of blessed. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, don't get too bogged down in a snake. Oh, a snake doesn't have vocal cords. Christians are so naive. That's so stupid. Whatever the case here, somehow the adversary, the enemy, Satan, the opposition to God made himself manifest in this way and presented to Adam and Eve and, and cunningly tempted them, effectively tempted them. Well, then God pronounces this kind of cryptic statement. He says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, he's, this, this is the, the first time in the scriptures where you see, well, now everything's changed about humanity. Now everything's divided into a people who are followers of Yahweh and a people who are not followers of Yahweh. And, and, and God is saying here that he's going to put enmity between the enemy, the adversary, and adversaries of God uh, and, and, the, and between his offspring and the woman's offspring. And then it goes on to say at the end of verse 15, he, her offspring, he, it's a he, wow, he, somebody, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
And I'll tell you, I don't know if Jonathan Todd's in here or not, but you know, he, he referenced this, I don't know, uh, three or four or five weeks ago or so, and I was so proud of him because, you know, we, we, we have heard our whole lives, you know, he shall, um, you're going to bruise his heel, he'll crush your head. And here in the ESV, it says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, as Jonathan said, the, the difference is one's a mortal wound and one's not a mortal wound. And by the way, that's pretty profound to call what happened to Jesus a bruising of the heel. That's pretty amazing. But Jesus is not mortally wounded. He's defeated death. But the enemy, mortally wounded. God is saying here that I am going to do something. And by the way, um, that has a, a, a definition. And the definition is the proto-evangelium. You ever heard that before? The proto-evangelium? Proto, first, evangelium, gospel, first, gospel. And so here in this cryptic statement, um, I will put enmity between you and the woman, her offspring and your offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. You're going to be mortally wounded. The sin problem is going to be dealt with. That right there is the proto-evangelium. It's the first gospel. And isn't that amazing? That right upon the fall, in the middle of the curse that comes as a result of the fall, there lies the proto-evangelium. And it's the the arc of the story continues of, of, of the scriptures. God is saying, I'm going to do something, and that will change the situation of those who have become accursed due to sin. All right, flip ahead to chapter 12. What does God do? Well, in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Oh, wow, all of a sudden uh, it pops up. There's this, uh, this uh, family tree right beforehand. But the Lord comes to this guy named Abram. Now, he wasn't a great guy. He wasn't a lover of Yahweh. He was a pagan who lived in the land of Ur of the Chaldees. And God, for his own purposes, comes to this one guy and he says, Abram, um, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. Blessedness and cursedness. And in you, all the families, that would be people groups, races, cultures, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Wow. God comes to Abram again, chapter 15. And uh, Abram says, oh Lord, uh, I'm childless. Let me summarize it for you for sake of time. Uh, we've never been able to have kids. And now, we're both too old for that to even happen. Impossible. And God says, um, He takes him outside, verse 5 of chapter 15. He, says, he brings him outside. He says, look, at, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then He said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram, Abraham, Abram believed the Lord, and He counted it to him as righteousness. Credited him as righteousness. You know what that is? Justification by faith alone. And then something wild happens. You know, Abram, Abram goes, uh, well, how, how, how am I to know that I shall possess it? In verse 8. How am I to know? And God's, God says, I'm going to do something for you. And so he, gets, he tells him to get a, a, a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And cut them in half. Now that seems really, really, really weird to us, doesn't it? cutting these things in half. And hey, I, you know, I've never heard it preached before, but 
upon my considering this, I'm like, that's a lot of blood cutting a cow in half. I bet it took like a super long time, like all day or more. And then a goat and a ram, the birds are easy. Cuts them in half. Very strange scene, right? And uh, then God puts Abram into a deep, dreadful sleep, and this vision comes upon him. And uh, a smoking fire pot with a flaming torch passed between those pieces of, um, um, that, that had been separated. And it says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And the idea there is, if I break this covenant, may what happened to these bloody pieces right here happen to me. It's like taking a hand or putting down the down payment uh, or a non-refundable deposit. God is saying, if, if I break my covenant, which I ain't going to do, may, may this happen to me. Well, God comes to Abram again. And this time, he changes his name to Abraham. Look at verse 22. Verse 17. Um, yeah. 22 verse 17. Um, God says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. Well, that covenant that God made with you, know, he calls Abram, then he comes to Abram again, and then he comes to Abraham. He calls him, he makes a covenant, he confirms the covenant, and then something happens. The child that was born, Isaac, to Abraham and Sarah, the child that is born, God comes to that child in chapter 26, verse 3. God says to that child, Isaac, sojourn in the land, and I will be with you. And I will, be bless, I will bless you, for, for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, give it, uh, give it to your offspring as the, uh, all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Well, then something else happened. Isaac has a kid, Jacob, and God comes to Jacob in Genesis chapter 35. God comes to Jacob in Genesis chapter 35, verse 3. Um, oh, I, do I have to, oh uh, excuse me. Yeah, 35, verse 9. 35, verse 9. God appears to Jacob, and um, he says, uh, your, no, your name's no longer Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Oh, wow. Well, now the story is continuing to un unfold. There's a sin problem. God addresses it. He covenants with this guy. He affirms the covenant. Uh, he, he, uh, he appears to his son. He confirms the covenant there. He appears to his son, changes his name to Israel. You're getting a little bit of the idea of the momentum that's happening here redemptively. And God says to him in verse 11, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Now, in those dealings with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's a refrain throughout the Scriptures, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, throughout God's dealings, you notice what God says repeatedly? I will. I will. I will. I promise. I covenant. He would be faithful to them as He expected them to be faithful to Him. I got to step on the gas here. We're almost there. We're almost there. Um, 
you know, one of my pet peeves, I hope I don't, I'm not offending everybody, but uh, is when people write their own wedding vows. I mean, first of all, they're kind of young, and, uh, and they're writing these vows, and I'm going to promise the... It always sounds stupid. That's not how it works. That's not how a covenant works. Will you do this? I will. Will you do this? I will. You don't get to pick your flavor. Will you enter into a covenant union? And, you know, throughout Israel's history, over and over and over again, they are unfaithful, but God remains true to His promises. God is the one who holds true. And can you imagine being a first reader of the verse I'm about to read you? You know, you, you look at, you're, you're a part of Israel and you see the nation fail again and fail again and fail again. Or how about you? God is faithful and you're not. Again, and again, and again. Overwhelming, isn't it? Can you imagine the first readers hearing Deuteronomy 7, 9? Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps His covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keeps His commandments to a thousand generations. And you know, uh, God even uses a story, the prophet Hosea, to depict this difficult relationship. He tells the prophet Hosea, hey, I want you to go out, I want you to go find yourself a hooker and make her your wife. And he does. Rescues her from that. And then she goes back. Can you imagine the sense of betrayal as one would go back and back and back? Can you imagine the betrayal? Well, we'll continue this over our next two weeks, but let me pull it all together like this. By the way, our, our next week, we're going to look at um, the bride in her devotion, so it's going to be very applicable to our lives. And then the two weeks from now, we're going to look at uh, the bride and her enjoyment of the Savior in heaven forever. So we'll talk a good bit about uh, heaven there too. But for now, let me close with this. A wedding. It's... Um, you know, the most important thing that happens to you in your life, you know, you, uh, you, you bring all your friends to one place. I mean, we just went to an out-of-town wedding. We went to one place, and, all, and we all traveled and went to this wedding, and, and uh, basically what you're doing with a wedding is you're inviting everybody who is most important to you in the whole world, and you're having them sit in the same room. That's pretty profound. And then you got some dude in a robe up there, and he's saying, will you do this, and will you do this, and I do, you know, it's just, you're making an oath. And by the way, uh, if you're a believer, you're making an oath before God. You're making an oath before God with an officiant in front of all the people who are most important to you in your whole life. Well, fidelity is expected. And by the way, you know, I mean, it's, it's so sad because 42% of marriages aren't going to make it. And, uh, you know, that's not, I, I, I bet Vegas would uh, not think too highly of the odds for these marriages. Um, and, and half the room's divorced too. So, you know, the accountability factor is gone. But the whole point is fidelity is expected. And fidelity in this relationship between God and His people is expected. And between Christ and His church is expected. The whole issue is fidelity. A last thing here. Um, Oh, yeah. And by the way, God uses a marriage um, to show what fidelity is supposed to be and what broken fidelity needs, uh, which is a savior. All right. This, this is what I close with. You know that the culture has shifted greatly when Madonna starts sounding quaint 
You know, she used to be so radical. It's like, oh, that old woman, she's still wearing the crazy outfits and, you know, like a virgin. Hey, uh, touch for the very first time. You're like, oh, what a sweet song. You know, when I'm with you, I feel like I haven't slept with a whole bunch of dudes. Well, you know, ladies and gentlemen, I, I found this quote in one of the books I was reading. He wrote, um, through Christ's sacrifice, intimacy with the Father can be restored and sins forgiven. Through Christ's atonement, we are presented to God with the purity of a virgin on her wedding day. What a rescue. You know, we're not just kind of like pulled in and showered off and tolerated and bleh. Rather, God makes us pristine. For us to fellowship with Him, a God who's holy, we got to be cleaned up and acceptable to be in His presence, else He couldn't be holy anymore. And the remedy is Jesus Christ, the Savior He sent, who died on the cross that we might be made clean and presentable to God as pure as a virgin. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word, and we thank You for uh, the way You have found um, a, a method of communicating across thousands of years and multiple authors and multiple cultures uh, that you would find us right where we are and show us our need and have the remedy for it, who is Jesus. We pray that you continue to help us in our study, and we pray, Lord, that uh, whatever is true about what we said here today would, would just resonate in our souls. Might we, might we rehearse uh, the great story of redemption that has been um, uh, unfolded before us, and might you make us hungry for more. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.